Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. In cirrhosis, blood flow around the liver is disrupted by what? And we have muscle fiber tissue, non-functional connective tissue, ascites, or edema. And with this question, it's really kind of common to want to be like, okay, well, with cirrhosis, right, which is our end-stage liver disease, you know, when blood flow is disrupted, right, it's going to cause ascites. So a lot of you might say, oh, perfect. And there's ascites for the answer. But this question is very much on wording because it's not saying what is disrupted blood flow around the liver going to cause, where, right, where you could be saying ascites would definitely be the right answer. But it's saying what is disrupting that blood flow. And that's going to be our non-functional connective tissue. This is just another way of saying fibroids. Because remember with cirrhosis and with liver disease, the liver is getting progressively more damaged, more fibroids. I kind of like to think about the fibroids, the fibroids as kind of these hard pieces of tissue. It's not going to be able to flow through it. So the more, you know, the higher volume of these hard fibrotic pieces, the worse your liver disease is going to get. And remember, once you're getting to fibrosis and cirrhosis, this is irreversible damage. So you're first going to have the fibroids causing You'd have portal hypertension, which can then lead to not only ascites, but also, but also varices, also varices as well. Okay, next question we had was from a student, and she said, I keep missing the not in practice questions, and then I'm getting them wrong. I reread them, but my brain reads the same thing. Any suggestions? And I absolutely love this question. This is something where, you know, I encourage you guys to ask questions like this because Sometimes you might have a math question or like a liver question, but a lot of time too, these test taking strategies, you need to be working on them just as much as you, just as much as you are, you know, setting everything up. So one of the things with the not questions, and you can kind of take this to all the practice questions, but this is how I teach my students. So when you're reading any question, especially when you're doing your practice, right, take advantage that you can read it out loud. So I would read out loud the question, right? So let's say it's saying like, which of the following is, let's stay in the liver lens. You know, let's say which of the following is not a cause of cirrhosis, right? So I would read through it then, and this is what I did on my exam because I am the same as this person. I would on my scrap paper, or if you're doing it at home, put a little box next to the knot. Because what you want to do is make sure before you click off that question that you're going, okay, did I put it correctly? Not. And then as you go into the questions, I want you to be thinking, I'm going to cross off anything that would cause cirrhosis because the question is, which would not cause cirrhosis, right? So like maybe it's saying, I'm going, it says excessive alcohol intake and I'm going, 
Would excessive alcohol intake cause cirrhosis? Answer, yes. Cross it out. Okay, the next one, right? Would obesity cause cirrhosis? I'm thinking, okay, yeah, potentially. I'll put my little squiggle, but I won't cross it out. Okay, the next one's saying excessive carbohydrate intake. Can this cause cirrhosis? I'm thinking, yes, cross it out. You know, maybe the last one's saying high fiber diet where I'm saying, okay, well, that one's not going to cause cirrhosis. So I'm then going back to obesity and saying, okay, that one's the worst one. But kind of reading it that way and saying, I'm going to cross out things that are in the positive light is helpful. And then before you go and click the question to go to the next one, go back to that box and put in what you said and said, you know, a high fiber diet does not cause cirrhosis. And then, okay, did I do that correct? And hopefully yes, and then you move on. So I would put kind of that little box and put it on your scrap paper, put it on, you know, if you're taking a paper exam on the Inman, highlight it, whatever works for you. But having that box and then eliminating them by saying which ones are kind of the opposite, which ones would, and crossing it out that way is going to help minimize it, the error, because with these questions, what's happening is your brain is just tipping over the knot. Don't forget this is the same thing with except or but. So you want to make sure you're doing that. And I would say give that a try. Um, and a lot of the time that will help you too. Um, other students on the post said, I forced myself to slow down. I had this problem when I was finishing my practice exams in 45 minutes, you know, with horrible scores. Once I went to kind of a minute Per question, I was increasing 18 to 20%. And that's absolutely correct. Again, reading the question, it sounds so stupid. And I say this to my one-on-ones all the time. I'm like, it sounds stupid when I'm like, you need to read the question when you're doing the practice. And you might be saying, well, during the exam, I can't read it out loud. Yeah, but you're going to already kind of be trained to read slower. So reading them out loud is really helpful. Um, another student said, I found it helpful not only slow down, but read the question out loud too. Exactly. So give that a try. And that's some, like these techniques are something you can take on to all of your questions too. And remember, if you're having difficulty getting kind of, you know, you know about the topic, but getting your practice questions up, definitely head to my website. I'll put the link below too and check out the recorded classes because Doing a practice question class is really, really helpful because you're going to have me walking you through how to read the question and answer the question too. And I've had a lot of students, especially if you're stuck at kind of that, you know, 22, 23, 24, where you're like, Dana, I know the answers. Doing a class and getting focused on those test-taking techniques can be super duper helpful. Next question we have is which of the following patient scenarios requires less stringent blood sugar targets, and then I, of course, said why. So we can actually apply what we just talked about to this one because I'm looking for the one who, like, does not, you know, need tight blood sugar control. So I'm going into this and saying, okay, I'm going to cross out anyone who needs, you know, really tight blood sugar control, right? We want to keep them on target. Okay. A, we have a 32-year-old with newly diagnosed diabetes. I'm crossing that one out right away. I'm like, yes, if you have new diabetes, I'm very much going to want you to have good control. So I cross that one off. 
could be. We have a 65-year-old with metformin only and who is determined to lose weight and get off the medication. Well, right? How am I going to get you off the medication? By you showing me your blood sugars are in tight range. So take that one off. C, a 72-year-old with an eight-year history of diabetes starting basal insulin. You're starting new insulin. I need you to have those blood sugar readings. So cross that one out. And then I get to D, 58-year-olds with severe cardiomyopathy, depression, and limited family support. And something to notice about this one, and this is why I put the question because a lot of people missed it, is, yeah, you know, we could argue, maybe we want him to have high, tight blood sugar control, but he's the only one that does not have diabetes. He does not have diabetes in this question. So with this one, I went through all my answers and I crossed out people I definitely would want to have tight blood sugar control, right? If these are my four patients and they're telling me, okay, Danny, you only have time to educate three people on diabetes control, who are you skipping? I'm skipping the one who doesn't even have diabetes. So this is a great one where if you're racing through it, you're not going to get the answer. But if you're reading and kind of saying, I'm going to cross out people who should have the blood sugar control, it's going to be a lot, a lot easier to get. Next one is domain one research. Which of the following is an advantage of a case control study and why? And you guys are going to notice that I like to put the why because I don't want you guys to just say, oh, it's A, it's B. And I don't want you to do that when you're doing your practice questions either. I want you to be able to tell me why. Why is it this answer? Tell me a little bit about the topic because making sure your knowledge is there is really, really important. So heading into this question, I'm thinking, okay, well, what is a case control, right? So case control, I have my two groups, my cases and my controls, right? Oh, shocking. But one has the disease, one doesn't. And I'm kind of taking histories on both of them and I'm saying, oh, like, what did you do? What did you eat? Where did you live? What medications were you on? And like, let's say for this, it's one of my oncology patients, right? So I'm, again, those who have cancer, who those don't. I'm getting the histories and then I'm making correlations based on, you know, what did one group tend to do who had, who had or didn't have the disease? So it might be like, oh, those who smoke tended to have lung cancer over those who didn't. So it's always retrospective. So I'm thinking first about, okay, you know, what are, what's some of my, re, my research vocab put in my terms and I'm going to go into the question. So, hey, it's easy to validate data in these studies. Well, not necessarily because it's correlational. So there could be things that are impacting it. Remember, our correlational studies are not going to be as strong as our randomized control trials. B, they facilitate the mechanism of the disease. Well, not necessarily because I'm, it's not telling me how the cancer is coming. It's just going, people who smoke tend to have more cancer. C, they're inexpensive to conduct. Well, it is retrospective. So that is, you know, one of the big advantages of that. So I'm going to put my little squiggle of like, mm, could be. And then D, a suitable comparison group is easy to identify. And this isn't necessarily true because it's, you know, who are we comparing it to? Yeah, it's going to be people who don't have the disease, but similar to RCTs, they need to be matched and kind of look perfectly there. So with this one, the best answer would be C, 
that it's inexpensive to conduct because what you're thinking about here is the fact, um, is going to be the fact that you are doing a retrospective study. Next question we have from a student, she said, can someone help me with this forecasting vision? And of course. So using the five-week simple moving average method of forecasting and the data below, the dietitian wants to see how many servings will be needed for October 17th. So when I, before I even look at this question, there's a little chart underneath with different dates and how many servings were consumed. I'm saying, what equation are you? So this is a five-week simple moving average. So with a simple moving average, what I'm doing is I'm looking at how many I want, so five, and I'm using the five most recents to find my average. So this chart is giving me a few different dates. I'm going to look for the most recent one and then go the most recent five. So on October 10th, I used 121. What am I? Beef roast. That's what we're doing. Okay, so add that to 120 used on October 3rd. Then on September 26th, I used 123. On October 19th, I used 119. And then, right, so that's four. And then on the 12th, I used 115. So I add those up, I get 598 and then divide by five, and then that's where I'm getting 119.6. So I would do 120 would be my best answer there. So the mistake that's most likely made on this question is adding them all up and finding the average. Nope, it's the moving average. So we're using the most recent ones. Most of the time they'll tell you, um, or if it's months, a lot of the time it's like a standard three month one. So a great one where the vocab, um, the vocab can definitely get uh, super tricky. Next one we have is a patient has hypernatremia, so high sodium, and with chronic peg placement and is having, um, and is on Reassource 2.0, so that's two, two, two calories per milliliter due to malnutrition. Patient free water flushes were increased on admission due to high sodium levels, right? Because high sodium, you're thinking dehydration. Now, patient has worsened hypernatremia than initial lab. The patient has chronic anemia, no GI bleed, generalized edema with chronic heart failure, and then also a high B1. What would you do as the dietitian? So with this patient, it's an interesting kind of case study um, one too. You know, always what I'm thinking when I'm thinking about the hypernatremia is I'm worried, right, that this patient is still dehydrated. So even though the free water flushes were increased, because it's a two calorie per milliliter formula, that formula is not providing a lot of water. So likely they are still dehydrated. So what I would be doing is I would switch the formula. So let's just say this patient requires 2,000 calories. So we had, be, we had been giving 1,000 calories of the tube feed. 
Now, a 2.0 formula, a 2.0 formula is only going to be 70% water. So if we do 1,000 times 0.7, it's only providing 700 milliliters of water. So most likely, the formula is kind of contributing to the dehydration because even if you're increasing water flushes, if your formula is only providing 700 milliliters, and let's say you're giving another 400 with flushes, you're still missing like 900 milliliters there to their needs. So here it's like a little bit of a trick question because you're having the flushes are increased, but you didn't do anything about kind of fixing that formula too. Um, and there's one comment on here, would that be refeeding syndrome? And no, not necessarily. Um, refeeding syndrome wouldn't cause hypernutremia. Refeeding syndrome would cause you to have low potassium, low phosphorus, low magnesium um, there too. Next one is a math question. So we have in a hospital with 300 patients, it takes 14 minutes to prepare one meal. How many FTEs are going to be needed per week? And this is a great question because where I see people make the most mistakes here are getting lost in the math, getting lost in the units. And if you've taken any of my math classes, you've heard me say, keep your units tight and get it right. So whenever I'm getting questions about patient meals, remember, do not starve your patients. So if I have 300 groups, 300 patients, they got to eat three times a day, seven days a week. So that alone is starting me out with 6,300 meals. Now, every single one of those meals takes 14 minutes per meal. So I'm going to multiply times 14, and yes, these numbers are going to get big. So that's telling me I have, in one week, 88,200 minutes spent on making meals. Now, we need to get to hours to talk about FTEs. So to divide by 60... That's going to tell me I spend 1,470 hours on these meals, divide by 40 because an FTE for one week is 40 hours per week, and I should be getting 36.75, or we can round that to 37. So that one, what makes it tricky is making sure you're thinking about what units am I in and where am I trying to go. Mistakes that I see students make on this question is not converting from minutes to hours is a common one to also not doing the patient meals. So if that, if that one tripped you up, definitely kind of run through those numbers again. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana R.D., every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.